Christ, I'm so thankful to be able to sing that truth with conviction and belief, genuine belief. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. I'm thankful for songs, Lord, that express for me what I want to express but don't know how. That proclaim the gospel in a beautiful and powerful way. I'm thankful for the way that we are able to behold you in your truth through singing, and now we ask that you would help us to do so in proclamation. These wonderful truths that we've been singing about, you you will hold us fast, that in you we live. Let us see them from the Scriptures today. Let the lost be spurred on in that direction. Let your children grow in adoration for you and, and faith and faithfulness. Lord, you've displayed your love to us so often. You've lavished your grace on us over and over again. And we ask humbly that you would do it yet again this morning. That your spirit would make your word compelling and apply it to our hearts. The things we ask, Lord, are far beyond our ability and they're far beyond just intellectual understanding. We ask that you infuse our lives with the truths of your word, that you would bring about a glorious redemption and a divine work that only you can receive credit for. And we ask this, Lord, because we admit we need you. We need you to do such work in us. We are sinful. We are helpless. We are often confused. We need your instruction. We need your direction. We're tempted. And today we need to see that there's nothing better, nothing greater than walking with you and serving you in faithfulness. God, be merciful to us. And as we have sung to you this morning, would you now speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles back to the Gospel of Luke this morning as we meet again with our dear friend. It has been some time since we've been back in Luke's Gospel. We took a, a brief break for the holidays. Now we pick right back up again in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, a unique parable of our Lord. We are in the last section of Luke's Gospel if you can remember back to chapter 18, verse 31 through 34, there's been a transition that has taken place where Luke's narrative now changes to one singular focal point. It has been building to Jerusalem, and yet now in chapter 18, it is all focused on Jerusalem, which is the culmination of Christ's earthly ministry because at Jerusalem is where he'll be crucified. And where he's crucified is where he secures our salvation. So Jesus' life and ministry has been building in that direction, but now it is singularly focused in that direction. In fact, in this chapter, Luke 19, verse 28, he'll enter into Jerusalem for the last and final time for the express purpose of being sacrificed. However, 
In our verses today, as of Luke 19 verse 1, we find him in Jericho, the city next to Jerusalem, preparing to enter, and for the context of today's parable, preparing the disciples for what's about to happen. Everything's about to change. And today's parable is given for the uh, expressed purpose of preparing and instructing the disciples and timelessly for future generations, even us, for what life looks like after Christ's crucifixion and before His return. So the goal of today's parable, if I could summarize it, would be this. It's to help us understand the times that we're living in, the times during Christ's departure and before His return, what our calling specifically is in such times, how we are to view such times, and namely, how we are to find contentment and joy in such times. So, look with me in Luke chapter 19. Let's let the text speak for itself, then we'll come back and walk through it as we are accustomed to. Verse 11, Luke 19. As they heard these things, He being Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minor from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, Jesus says, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's a unique parable. It's a difficult parable. There's a lot going on in that parable. In verse 11, we're told the purpose for Jesus sharing this. He proceeded to tell a parable because this is the intention. This is the reasoning. This is the purpose of what he's stating. And there's two purposes expressly given in verse 11. Because number one, he was near to Jerusalem. And because number two, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
going near to Jerusalem, they think, as will be the case in verse 28 with the triumphal entry, they think that Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God. This isn't the first time we find uh, the disciples and people following Jesus having a, a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God is. In Luke ch chapter 17, verse 20 through uh, 37, Jesus has already had to explain the the coming and purpose of the kingdom of God. He'll have to even do it again. In Acts chapter 1 verse 7. They're asking. Now that you've returned and resurrected Lord. Now are you going to bring in the kingdom? And he says. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed. Over and over again. Jesus is having to explain. What the kingdom of God really is. That doesn't negate the necessary task of sharing this parable. It enhances it. They don't understand what is coming. They think drawing near to Jerusalem, Jesus is about to usher in everything that we have waited for since the covenant with David. He's going to enter into Jerusalem and establish himself as king and liberate Israel from her captors, which would be Rome, and usher in the glory of God. And they're looking forward to such an event. And Jesus knows the truth. He is going to enter Jerusalem, but not like they think. He will declare victory, but not like they think. He will instead lay down his life to claim victory. And then he'll resurrect and ascend into heaven without ushering in the kingdom of God. And so understanding that, Jesus knows I'm drawing near to Jerusalem, number one. And they have no idea what's coming. They have no idea that the cross lays ahead of me. They have no idea that my life will be taken from me. They have no idea that I'm going to be buried. And in his compassionate grace... He instructs them and prepares them for what lies ahead. I mean, let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment. We're coming to Jerusalem. We think the kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus enter, enters in this grand celebration. And then his life is taken. Like we read of the disciples, you and I would have been the same. Asking ourselves, what have we placed our faith in? This one that we've believed, this one that we've trusted, and this one we followed, he's now dead. And then in this huge emotional twist, he's resurrected. Hallelujah, now the kingdom's coming. And then he gets taken away from us again in the ascension. What are we going to do? We're confused. Christ shares this parable to get them ready, to prepare them, to prepare us for the time between his departure and his return when he actually does bring in the kingdom. Those two explicit reasons in verse 11 are very important to the nature of the parable. They're very important for us today. Jerusalem is the prelude to Christ's departure. Where he dies on the cross and will eventually resurrect and ascend. And he needs the disciples to understand that ministry and life with Jesus is about to change significantly. So knowing what lies ahead, drawing near to Jerusalem, this parable needs to be given. Knowing that the kingdom isn't going to come like they think, but come at a much later date, this parable needs to be given to instruct them, ultimately instruct them in faithfulness. In verse 12, we're introduced to the main character of the parable, no name is given, but he is highlighted by his title. He's a nobleman. We know from the parable that he's a wealthy individual. He's a powerful individual. He will leave his servants. He will receive a kingdom. He'll come back to his servants. 
he's a man of stature and influence, implied that at least in some respect, he's a respectable, worthy individual. He can at least govern. This is the individual that all the parable revolves around. And it's the individual that Christ likens himself to. Notice in verse 12, this nobleman is going into a far country to receive a kingdom. And then it is certain in Christ's words that he will return. But the fact that he goes into a far country implies that it might be a rather lengthy departure. It might be a rather lengthy journey. How long will he spend receiving his kingdom? How long will he celebrate? How long will his coronation be? How long and how far will he have to travel? His absence will be prolonged. And it's in that setting we find the instruction given in verse 13 to the servants. Ten servants are called. And ten servants are given each a mina. And each given the same instruction. That instruction isn't based upon their ability or their gift. The instruction is based upon their faithfulness. The same is true for you and I. We have different gifts, different abilities, but the same task as these servants. Faithfulness. Each one given a mina. And the instruction and the emphasis of the parable is this. Engage in business until I come. Let's first consider, before we consider the instruction, the individuals whom he's given it to, the servants. Those servants are the people who identify themselves with the nobleman and they actually belong to the nobleman. Which means his success is their success. They are all about the nobleman's agenda. They're all about his work. They're under his care, under his provisions. They're on his team. In fact, their entire reputation is marked out by their relationship to the nobleman. They are nothing but servants to him. As they engage in the community, as they work on his behalf, they are his and will be seen as such. Then they're given, as we consider the amount before the instruction, they're given an unassuming amount of money. Your Bible should have the footnote. You can easily find a Bible with a footnote. To understand what a single mina is. A mina is about three months wages for a common laborer. Which isn't a life changing amount of money. It's a large sum. If you and I got one lump paycheck from three months of work. It would be a large sum. But it's not a life changing amount of sum. Uh, sum of money. One individual likened it to this. They wouldn't be able to go out and buy a, a new mansion but they might be able to go out and buy a new car with that kind of money. And so the nobleman's not entrusting uh, all of his wealth or all of his fortune or, or this life-changing amount of money to them. He's concerned primarily with their actions. And that's the instruction given. Engage in business until I come. It's the only instruction given to the servants. Which tells us it's the desire of these, this nobleman that his servants be faithful to his business while he's away. Act on his behalf. Act in his stead. Do what he would do if he were present. In fact, do it knowing that you're going to have to give an account to him. 
What's the life like? How are you and I supposed to exist in this interim time of history between Christ's departure and Christ's return? Exactly how these servants are instructed to live. Faithfully. Engaging in the business of our Lord. Regardless of public perception and regardless of how people view our Lord, we are to be faithful to His agenda, faithful to His calling, faithful to His success, faithful to His glory. We're to engage in His work. Our Lord is like this nobleman. He's gone into a far country. And His absence has been prolonged. And we don't know when He's going to come back with His kingdom. We don't know the length of His journey. We're waiting like these servants are. And the same expectation that's given to them and the same preparation that's given to the disciples is extended to us. Be faithful while I'm away. Act as if I were present. Conduct business as if I were conducting business. Do things how I would do things. That is the great task given to you and I. That is the calling of the life that we live. Engage in the business of our Lord. The key to that is that we engage in the business of our Lord over and against slothfulness. Over and against neglect. Over and against distraction. Perhaps you've heard of the old adage, while the cat's away, the mice will play. That's a true statement. While the boss is gone, I might just kind of be lazy. I might just kind of slowly do my work. I might not be as diligent while my master's watching. Well, the same is tempting for Christians. I see no imminent sign of the Lord's return. I might just be casual about my faith or casual about my life or live for my own agenda or my own victories or my own successes. That's not our calling and that's not our task. While the Lord is away, we are to engage in the business of the Lord until He comes. The focus isn't on the money given to these servants. It's on the action that's instructed to them. Be faithful. It's one of the greatest messages the church needs to hear today. Be faithful. In an age where we are so tempted to draw a crowd, in an age where we're so tempted to be tolerant, in an age where we're so tempted to compromise, our task is unchanging. Be faithful. In an age where it's easy to get lost in worldliness, where most churches around us look just like the world around us, our task is still unwavering. Be faithful. Remembering when the Master comes back, you'll have to give an account of your faithfulness. Well, Moving on, we'll touch on that in just a moment. Moving on to verse 14, a different group is introduced and they're introduced in a contrasting fashion. They're called citizens. Now in the language of Scripture, we might understand something about why they're called citizens. Servants carry this personal relationship kind of connotation with it. If you're a servant to the nobleman, you have a personal relationship to that nobleman. But if you're a citizen, you're removed. 
There is no personal relationship. But notice even in verse 14, in Jesus' language, he still calls them the citizens of the noblemen. His citizens hated him. And they are given in contrast to these servants, not just for the sake of being contrasting, but because they are deliberately introduced to express their hatred for the nobleman. They despise him. They reject his rule. They reject his reign. They reject his authority. They want nothing to do with him. They despise his principles. They hate his standards. And they openly, in verse 14, denounce him. Publicly, unashamed, to say we hate the nobleman. So much so that we're going to send our own delegation on this very far journey, long journey, to this very far country for the express purpose of saying we don't want this man to reign over us. Now for Jesus' audience at this time, that is a striking example. Because in history, it has just happened. Herod's son is being appointed to reign over the Jewish people. And he has to go to Caesar to receive that appointment. And the Jewish people so despised him, they sent a delegation to Caesar saying the exact same thing. We don't want Herod's son to reign over us. That was common custom of the time. For any individual who was going to be promoted in the Roman Empire as a king or a governor, the citizens would send a delegation to either affirm or denounce their reign over them. Jesus is using a very modern, very recent example of governing. The people would have understood because they just did the same thing about the man who's reigning over them. They understand the citizens' hatred, their fear, their rejection, their despising of such a ruler. These are the citizens described in verse 14, which makes us come to understand that in the time between Christ's departure and His ascension, or Christ's departure and uh, via the cross in Jerusalem and His return at the end of time, there will be two types of people. There will be one, servants, and there will be two, citizens. Servants are those who belong to Christ as believers, who treasure Him, who are given what they need to engage in the business of the Lord before, we, before He returns. And then there are the citizens who are unbelievers, who hate God, who don't like His Word, despise His law, reject His salvation, and they don't want Him to rule over them. In fact, it's not just that they don't want Him to rule over him, over them in a passive fact, fashion. They are actively trying to reject the Lord. And they are fighting in vain, but fighting to disrupt His rule and reign. If that doesn't describe the world around us, I don't know what does. We live in an age again and in a world again that despises and hates its ruler. So much so that they come up with outrageous thoughts to, to explain away the Creator and explain away morality and explain away their absolute accountability to He who is King over all things. These citizens so hate the noblemen that they will even hate His servants as well. 
And Christ would have his disciples to understand that. And Christ would have you and I to understand that. The nobleman is hated by his citizens. And as such, those who are marked by a relationship to him are hated as well. They're despised. They're rejected. And yet, you notice, the instruction doesn't change, does it? Be faithful anyways. Be faithful. The citizens hate him. The citizens don't want him. The world hates us. The world doesn't want Christ to rule over them. But be faithful anyways, church. Be faithful. The fact that the citizens hate the nobleman doesn't negate the servant's task of engaging in business. Well, we come now to verse 15. And notice something glorious in the parable. He returned. Having received the kingdom. I find immense relief in that. Because if Christ is likening himself in this parable to the nobleman. And citizens to unbelievers, which I believe he is. Then it matters not how much the world cries against our God. He is still king. And it doesn't matter how much unbelievers reject him and rebel against him and despise him. He still ushers in his kingdom. We aren't servants to a nobleman in vain. We're servants to a king who absolutely becomes king, is king, reigns as king, and brings about his kingdom. We be faithful in the face of hostility and rejection. Knowing what lies ahead. Our master comes back with his kingdom. That's an important lesson. Well, first in verse 15, the servants are brought to be examined before the nobleman. He returns. He's received the kingdom. He orders that his servants to me had given the money be called that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In these next few verses, verses 16 through uh, really verse 25, we come to find out that the nobleman really doesn't care about the profit that's made from these servants. In verse 16 and 17 and 18 and 19, two faithful servants are brought before the nobleman. Now notice in verse 13, ten servants are given the instruction and the money, but only three are going to be represented. There are generalizations of those types of servants we'll find. And the first two are faithful. And they come before him and notice their response to the nobleman. They don't take credit for, for anything that they had gained. They readily acknowledge, it's not my ability, it's not my, my business prowess, it's not my eloquent speech or negotiating skills that has done something good. It's, it's only your mina. That's what they say. Lord, the first servant, verse 16, your mina has made ten minas more. Not me, but your mina has done this. The second servant in verse 18 will say the same thing. Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And notice the response of the nobleman in verse 17. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. Even the nobleman acknowledges the amount of money I've given to you is very little. What I'm concerned about is your faithfulness. 
And what does faithfulness bring about in the heart of the nobleman? Pleasure and approval and lavish reward. The same thing is implied for the second servant. In verse 19, he says to him, also, you are to be over five cities. There's this pleasure. There's this delight. You've done what I've asked you to do. And it wasn't based on your ability. It wasn't based on how much profit you brought because we're not in control of how much profit we, we bring before the Lord. It's based on your faithfulness. You've been faithful and I delight in it. Here's the reward. Church, it's not worldly successes that should catch us up. It's faithfulness that matters before God. Are you faithful? Seeing the nobleman be pleased should stir our hearts to faithfulness. I don't know about you, but my greatest desire in life is for God to be pleased with me. I find no joy in all the good and great and glorious things that I experience on this earth by God's gracious hand, there's nothing in my life like the joy of Christ's approval. Nothing. Faithfulness is worth it in the face of hostility, in the face of rejection, in the, in the face of opposition. Even when an entire world or an entire society pushes back against you, faithfulness is still worth it simply based on the pleasure and approval of Christ. Be rejected so that you might taste the approval and pleasure of Jesus. Be mocked so that you might taste the approval and pleasure of Jesus. The reward given to these two servants is extravagant. Notice the nobleman is a super wealthy individual by the time he comes back. He's a king. And he has over, over, under him, under his charge, all of these cities and tax revenue and lands and people. He, I mean, he's got the authority and the rule. And he, out of his pleasure and approval, graciously shares it. And you see the picture of Christ there who inherits heaven and graciously shares it. And, and notice the lavish reward again. These guys deal with Ten minus and five minus. It's, it's a little more than two years wages put together. It's still a very small amount of money. And they're rewarded with cities in comparison. Cities worth. And on top of that, we can conclude from verse 24, they even get to keep their minas. Not that it matters much anymore. The, the nobleman wasn't in it for the profit that he could get. In fact, the third servant, he says, you could have just collected interest and I would have been pleased with that. I'm not in it for the profit. How do I know you keep your minas? I'd be good with bank interest. And here's cities as your reward. It's faithfulness that he cares about, church. And that faithfulness is rewarded far beyond what these servants could have ever imagined. Ten cities infinitely outweighs ten minus. 
five cities infinitely outweighs five minus. They are lavished with good things. Lavished with abundance. The Lord cares about your faithfulness. He is pleased in your faithfulness. Rewards based on faithfulness. Well, let's speed along here. Verse 20 in, introduces a tricky character. There's a third and final servant in this passage. He's not faithful by the nobleman's standards. He kept the mina hidden in a handkerchief because of what he says in verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now, the nobleman isn't going to agree with that accusation or that assessment, which I don't either. Studying the nobleman's character, I think verse 21 is an unfounded accusation. It's unclear where this third servant um, gets such a thinking about the nobleman. The first two servants didn't appear to think this at all about their nobleman. They were faithful to him. They carried out his business. They acted on his behalf and, and seemingly were delighted to do so. This third one, though, has this out of left field kind of idea about the nobleman. I personally think he's been tainted by the citizens. He's been tainted by the world around him to have a messed up view of who his master is. In verse 22, we are met with a sarcastic, I believe the grammar is right, a sarcastic kind of rhetorical question. First, the nobleman is angry, and I don't think as much about the lack of faithfulness here as it is the accusation. You've got my character all wrong. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. And then the rhetorical question, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? That's what you believe? That's what you think? Verse 23, the nobleman exposes the inerrant or the errant logic in that thinking. Why then, if you were so afraid of me, did you not simply draw interest from a bank? Your thinking of me is faulty. It's wrong. And then strikingly enough, verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And the people around him complain, Lord, he has ten. He doesn't need more. In fact, that's a true statement, isn't it? One more mina isn't going to make a difference to a man who has authority over ten cities. But again, it's faithfulness that matters. Give it to him because I know he'll be faithful. So he says in verse 26, this great lesson that you and I should learn. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know what these verses tell me? In my finite thinking, they tell me that faithfulness is such a big deal to God, it may just indicate whether or not you are actually saved. It may indicate whether or not you are a true servant or an imposter. 
there are going to be many imposters who think they are saved and they are not and their lack of faithfulness will be evidence against them. You were not faithful. So what he had was even taken away from him. There's still another group in verse 27 to be dealt with. It's the citizens of verse 14. But notice in verse 27, they're no longer regarded as citizens. They're regarded as enemies. As for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, who rejected me and hated me and despised me, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's a weighty sentence. It implies some extremism because the language isn't just that they are put to death, but that they are brought into the presence of the nobleman who is now a king into the presence of the king so that he might with his own eyes not only approve of their execution, but witness it and see its finality. And such will be for all who are enemies of the king. All who reject his rule and all who reject his authority, all who would be marked as citizens will be brought before him and slaughtered. It's a very picturesque scene, isn't it? Vivid. The imagery is burdensome for us. And so we aren't to miss what this parable is communicating to us. It's communicating instruction to the servants and warning to the enemies. And the warning is, if you are an enemy when the king returns, you will be unequivocally slaughtered. And no amount of pleading, no amount of talking, no amount of running, will spare you. At the king's order, you will be brought and drugged before him and dealt with. That's not the, the loving, tender baby in a manger that we've celebrated at Christmas, is it? And yet it is. Because the weight of sin and the the disgusting nature of sin before a holy God warrants such a punishment as this. Rejecting such a glorious, perfect, loving King as Jesus warrants such an eternal punishment as this. See the warning. As we live in the time between Christ's departure and His imminent impending return, see the warning. All enemies will be slaughtered. And heed the instruction. To be faithful, church. Be faithful. So that when the king comes and he examines you, he might find faithfulness. Don't get caught up in thinking that I haven't had as much influence as this guy or that guy. Or, or I haven't done as much for the name of Christ as this person or that person. It's not the amount of minus that the nobleman was concerned with. Again, it is 
faithfulness. Be faithful with what has been given to you. Be faithful where God has placed you. Be faithful in engaging in the business of the Lord. And before I finish, let's define what that might be. That is nothing less than the proclamation of the gospel, the advancement of the agenda of His kingdom, and the exaltation of His glory. Be faithful in sharing the gospel, living as a servant of His kingdom, and glorifying Him in all that you do. That's the business we engage in as believers, as a church. I would leave you with this one final quote from a man named T.W. Manson. He writes this about this parable. He says, we may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion of this parable. But beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact. The fact that the coming of Jesus to the world puts every man to the test and compels every man to a decision. And that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death. Every man will be put to the test when Christ comes back. Every individual. And you will be found to be the faithful servant or you will be found to be the enemy citizens. The question you and I have before us this morning is, which am I and which will I be? The good news about all of this is if you have found yourself by the Holy Spirit's gracious conviction in your life, if you have found yourself to be unfaithful, the good news is, behold, it is the day of salvation. And repentance is possible. And salvation is free. And God will save you and make you a faithful servant. If you have found yourself to be a citizen, found yourself to be an enemy with impending slaughter on the horizon, you can turn to the king and be saved today. That is good news. For every man will be put to the test. The other lesson to be learned from this is, if you are a true servant, striving for faithfulness, may a text like this spur us on to greater faithfulness. To lay aside our agenda of life and how we hoped things would go. To lay aside our planning. To lay aside our reputation. And to care about nothing more than the pleasure and reward of the King. And in so caring about such things, be faithful to Him. That we might reap such things like the pleasure and reward of the King. Christ has left this world for a time. But His return is coming and it is coming soon. And at that coming, every one of us will stand tested and examined. What will the King find about you? It's all going to be laid bare, as Hebrews says, before Him whom we must give an account. We will be exposed like naked before Him. And nothing that you're justifying in your own life today will be justified before Him. You will be examined. Be honest today that you might be saved.
Lord, we humble ourselves today to your scriptures. So much could be said from this parable and perhaps ought to be said. And yet we trust that your your word will be working in our hearts and it is working in our hearts. It, it will even sink from our minds to our hearts. As Mr. Manson said, let us understand this is no light decision that has been put before us. You made it so abundantly clear as you drew near to Jerusalem that when you return, we will be tested. Oh, how I pray we will be found faithful and that any here who are enemies of yours might be convicted to be saved. Lord, do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.